Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden. And on this episode with Sarah Dykman, Bicycling with Butterflies, we will be talking with Sarah about her 2013 10,201 mile journey following the monarch butterflies migration by bicycle. But first, a word from our sponsor, the Save Our Monarchs Foundation. Hello, my name is Ward Johnson, and I'm the founder and chairman of the Save Our Monarchs Foundation in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are proud to be sponsoring this edition of Nature Revisited. This is a foundation that was established purely to encourage others to plant more milkweed seeds. We started it in March 15, 2014, with the sole intent of encouraging others to plant. And we've established over 26,000 monarch perennial school gardens across the U.S. and Canada. Our goal for 2023 is to add another 20,000 on our website, saveourmonarchs.org. You'll see a map that's just filled with locations of where our schools are located. Thank you very much. Sarah joins me from Mexico, where she is continuing her work trying to help the monarchs not only to survive, but to be able to continue their amazing migration north through the U.S. and Canada. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you. I'm doing well. I'm in Mexico right now, and I'm trying to do a little project about monarch butterflies. And uh, Well, the monarchs are just now arriving to Mexico. Well, they've been arriving for the last few weeks, and they'll be here until until March. And then they leave again. Yep. So right now they're just finding their spot to spend the whole winter. Hopefully just pretty much do nothing so they can conserve their fat reserves. And then once it warms back up again in February February and March, they'll they'll head north once again, hopefully. So, Sarah, I really enjoyed your book, Bicycling with Butterflies. And I'm thrilled to have you here on the program. But your story really begins way before your adventure of following the migration of the monarchs. Where are you originally from, and how much did the natural world influence you at a young age? I grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City, and my access to nature was very limited. I had a backyard with a Bradford pear tree. You know, I was the kid that never, ever wanted to play with dolls. I always wanted to play with stuffed animals and and draw pictures of animals. I wanted to design aquariums for frogs at zoos because, like, that was literally the only thing I knew about animals is that you feel like they're at zoos. And I went to college in California and found out on my second day of school that there was a job where you could study animals in the wild. And I picked that major, and I, I never looked back. And, and now I feel very lucky that I can spend my my summers, mostly my summers, doing seasonal field work and being outside and exploring and, and discovering animals and learning about them and kind of learning to see the world through their eyes. When did you see your first monarch? 
You know, I wish I had an awesome origin story about the Monarchs. I don't, I was not super in love with Monarchs before I started. I knew that they had a cool migration. My, my passion is frogs. The frogs don't migrate. I don't like have that moment where like I fell in love with Monarchs. It was more, oh, they have this cool migration. Oh, I should follow them on my, on my bicycle. And then as I followed them, I learned more and more. And, and now we're tangled in this web, the Monarchs and I. I need them. They need me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in deep. So when did the idea of traveling with the Monarchs on their migration and bringing attention to their situation, where did that come from? Well, I've, I've done a lot of other adventures. I've biked to 49 of the 50. I've canoed the Missouri River. I did a hiking trip from Mexico to Canada. And so on these trips, you meet people doing doing other trips, and, and you have lots of time to think. It was actually on a bike tour between Bolivia and Texas. I was in Mexico, and I wanted to visit the monarchs. I looked at the calendar and learned, oh, the monarchs leave. You know, by, by the middle of March, most of the monarchs have, have left. And it was the end of March, and I was like, no way am I biking up a 10,000-foot hill to maybe see a monarch. I said, I'll, I'll just come back. And, of course, like I said, when you're on a bike tour, you have a lot of time to think. And so it was while I was on that, finishing that trip that I thought, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll bike with them. And, and then that idea just sat. And most ideas sit for a long time until, until you pick a time and, and you decide to make it happen for real. I, th- I think maybe an important lesson that I have is, is, is for folks is to remember that I am not the best rider. I am not the fastest cyclist. I am not the strongest or the bravest, but but I'm the one that did it. And so I think there's so many things we can do, and we're waiting because we think someone could do it better. And yes, someone could do it better. But if no one else is doing it, then you're going to be the best at it. So I think pick pick an animal that you love. Pick pick a way to give your talents to them, whether that's writing a song or teaching kids or talking to politicians, like whatever it is that, that is kind of your gift to the world, go give that gift. And don't worry about not being the best at it because better you than no one. And, and I think that's that's kind of carried me through. It's like, I don't have to be the best. I just have to go do it. So why was it so important to you personally that you make that journey with the monarchs? I mean, the answer to that question changed over the course of eight and a half months of biking with them. At the start, the, the point of my trip was to to go on an adventure and to share that adventure with school kids. And as I learned more and more about the monarchs, I learned more and more about how they're losing their habitat and they and that every single person can help them. And I and I really saw the proof of that by visiting backyard gardens and front yard gardens and golf courses and exploring the side of the road and and the more the more I saw the more I realized if we don't make a lot of noise we're we're going to lose this migration and and now I just feel like I owe it to the monarchs they've given me so much they've given me a platform they've given me a book they've given me an adventure a lot of friendships and so now I'm trying to return the favor by continuing to to speak on their behalf so you started your journey in Mexico at one of the sanctuaries for the monarchs over winter. What place do the monarchs hold among the local community and culture in Mexico? That really depends on, on who you ask. I have a lot of friends here that, that love the monarchs. They're beautiful. I have a lot of friends here that are guides 
So they, they see the monarch as, as also an opportunity to have a job during the, the time the monarchs are here. A lot of I think a lot of people see them as as an opportunity to have have an economy. So if if you're not a guide, then maybe you're making food for tourists, or maybe you're a taxi driver. And so I think a lot of people see that the monarchs bring in opportunities. I would say that I haven't seen that special connection that I think a lot of people hope for. I mean, the area around here is is poor, and so the and the main priority is figuring out ways to make money and feed your family. It's just like in the U.S., right? Until until there's a reason to notice, it's easy for people not to notice what's in their own backyard. So you wouldn't say that they are considered sacred? No. I mean, I think at one point they they were. For the most part, they don't see the monarch as, as divine, which I, I think... People want want that story, and I don't. I haven't seen that story to be true. Do you consider the monarch to be sacred? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I believe that, and I'm a scientist that that has faith in the in the fact that there's there's power to the ecosystem, and there's power to how every every living creature is connected, and and how they're our family, and and so I I do see them as sacred. So one of the many things that I learned from your book was just how their migration works, which was an eye-opener for me. Can you give us a quick lesson on how the monarchs that leave Mexico in, let's say, March are not the same ones that return in the fall? And your thoughts about why they migrate the way they do? So the first part of that question is is the fact that the monarch migration is multi-generational, which, which I think is one of the reasons it's so spectacular. Like you said, the monarchs that leave in March head north, where they, they arrive to the emerging milkweed in Texas and Oklahoma, and they lay their eggs on that milkweed, and then they die. So those eggs become the first generation of the season, and it, and it takes between three to five generations complete the whole migration. And that, that generation born in the fall, we call it a super generation. They'll, they'll fly all the way to Mexico, overwinter in Mexico, and fly back to start it all over again the, the next season. So the reason they, they do this is, to, is because there's this incredible food source called milkweed, which is the only food source of the monarch caterpillar that covers North America. But of course, if they stay in, in Kansas in the winter, they would freeze to death. So they fly to Mexico to find this one, this one mountaintop where I'm at currently that's pretty much the perfect temperature, not too hot, not too cold, and they'll kind of just postpone breeding and just wait out winter until they can go back to where the milkweed is, to where that food source is in, in the spring. How did you feel when you first set off? I was ready to go. I've been talking about going on a trip for a while, and, and I, I have a, enough trips under my belt to know the, the best thing to do when you start is to not think about the end. So I was really just concerned about getting to the next to that next night's spot. And I, I didn't know exactly where that was going to be, but I knew I need to get 50 miles down the road. You know, I concerned myself more with, like, finding, finding food and a place to sleep. And try not to think about about the United States or Canada, especially, and, and not think about the, the the return trip. Just think about that moment, and and in that, like, there's a, a lot of freedom because 
also, you know, I was on my bike and I was carrying everything I needed. So when I left, it was like, all right, I got everything I need. Now I just have to go and see what's beyond the next horizon and see what's beyond that road I haven't been down yet. So it's, it's always exciting to start. Did you think that your your trip would turn out the way it did when you started? No, I thought my trip would be like my other trips where I would do it and I would I would hold on to those memories, but they wouldn't continue to ripple out. I found out, however, that there's just a passionate monarch stewards that are that are fighting on the on behalf of the monarch and, and the future. They rallied for me and they continue to support me and they continue to to ask for me to to help them be a voice. So what what started out is just a, a trip to you know go on a, go on a trip, see the monarchs, talk to some kids, learn a little bit has has really become something much more. I never planned to write to write the book, but about halfway halfway through my trip, I just I realized the monarchs needed me to to tell the world what I thought and to show the world what I see. What I saw was was oftentimes very sad and made me very, very angry. And, and so the book was kind of like a, a way to articulate that anger and to put it in the context of the hope I feel and, and hopefully allow other people to feel that anger and then at the same time then go out and do something about it. So what do you think is the greatest threat to the monarch butterfly? Short-term habitat loss, long-term climate change. If they don't have a home, they obviously can't lay their eggs. With climate change, the mountains here in Mexico will at some point no longer be suitable for them. Perhaps the milkweed will continue to advance north and it will be just too big of a, a gap. We need to do short-term fixes of planting milkweed and other native nectar plants in every single yard, every single roadside. The latest report is that we need to plant 1.8 billion stems of milkweed in order to give the monarchs a future. We're not going to do that waiting for national parks, waiting for national wildlife refuges to get on board. We're the only way we're going to get 1.8 billion milkweeds in the ground is everyone plant milkweed and nectar plants in their yard. And then, of course, long-term, we've got to, we've got to stop climate change. We've got to heal the planet. So how quickly are they disappearing? To assess trends and assess what's happening, we really need to step back and because the data is so new it's like it's still a little hard to, to tell we know for sure that they're declining rapidly that we lost about 90 percent in the last in the last two decades a lot of that's because of habitat loss which includes replacing corn with gmo corn that could be sprayed with herbicides monarchs lost a lot of land overnight to to herbicides being able to be sprayed on that on the corn we were growing the really cool thing about monarchs is that they can recover because they're multi-generational. If you imagine a female monarch to lay 400 eggs, a few of those survive, say four. Well, that's still doubling the population in one generation. So we could essentially double not once or twice, but up to five times in one summer if there's adequate amount of milkweed. There is potential for recovery, but we have to get those plants in the ground and we have to put those plants everywhere because what climate change does is wreaks havoc in different places at different moments. Because the monarchs spread out, the good news is if there's good habitat and minor climate chaos in one spot, then that might make up for the fact that there's, that there's a climate chaos somewhere else. But if we don't have good habitat everywhere, then those monarchs might not be able to find those pockets of hospitable habitat in order to, to carry on. 
So in your book, you say that the monarch will probably survive in some way. So why is the monarch North American migration so important? And what would we lose if it doesn't continue? Well, I think everyone will have to answer that for themselves. But for, for me, if you go outside in the fall and see a monarch and know that they're flying thousands of miles to a place they've never been, but to the place that their great-great-great-grandparents lived the winter before. And if you can look at that and absorb how incredible that is and really take a moment to process like the awe and the triumph and the seemingly impossibleness of it all, that's worth something, that feeling of knowing that there's something so incredible in this world. And to lose it is so disrespectful to nature and also disrespectful to the next generation because we're deciding that that awe isn't worth enough to save for them. There's a lot of answers to that. You could say pollination is important. You could say 500 eggs from each female feeds the food web. But to me, the monarch is important because they're, they're a monarch and they do a migration and they deserve to live here just as much as you do or just as much as I do. So along your trip, you talked about how you stopped quite often to make presentations to different schools and organizations. How did you organize them? And what was your reception along the way? I spent so much time on my trip organizing presentations. People think the hard part is biking. The hard part was not biking. The hard part was planning to arrive at a school when there are a million unknowns. I couldn't predict the weather. I can't predict how I would be feeling. I can't predict how my bike would hold up. Like, there's just so, so many unknowns. But I would tell a school I was going to arrive. And then I would make it happen. Sometimes that was easy and sometimes that was hard. But, but I spent a lot of time in my tent at night looking at Google Maps thinking, can I get there on Wednesday? No, I probably should stay Thursday. Oh, where am I going to stay? I need a shower. But I made it happen. I made it happen because a lot of people invited me in. I stayed with 68 different families on my trip. Most of them were strangers to start. They cared about the monarch, and they saw that my, my trip had the power to, to reach a lot of people, and, and so they extended a hand, gave me warm, warm meals, warm showers. I got a lot of support on the road. Could you maybe share one or two highlights of those encounters along the way? You know, a lot of my encounters are for a short time, and part of that kind of makes them special because they're so unpredictable. But I'm thinking, you know, I tell this story all the time, but it's such a good story of like being, I was on the most boring road and it was super hot in the desert in Mexico and a motorcycle pulled up next to me. And my first reaction was like, I don't want to talk to this guy. I'm hot and sweaty and I just want to get where I'm going. And I stopped and then on the back of his motorcycle was a cooler and he said, hey, do you want some ice cream? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> And it's like just that little moment, that interaction was probably 20 minutes. But it's such a beautiful story of like of connecting to a person of, and then about the power of saying yes. I try to say yes as much as possible. Another story that I, I don't say as much but speaks to like saying yes is I tried to say yes and sometimes I'd be too tired. It's a lot of work to go to someone's house and perform and tell the same stories and over and over and it takes a lot of energy as opposed to like sitting in your tent eating a sandwich and going to bed. I think I was in Minnesota and a man at a grocery store was like, hey, you should come to my house. And I said no. And I left and I immediately regretted that. I went down the road and I was going to camp. I kind of 
looked at Google Maps for a place to camp, and I looked and I looked, and the place that I thought I might be able to camp at was not suitable. And I was sitting there, and I get a I get a phone call, and I'd given my a business card to this this person, and he called me, and he was like, "Are you sure?" And I turned around and had a lovely a lovely night meeting his family, and and then he gave me a tour of some places that had been converted from corn to to natives, so, so farmers were getting government support to convert low productive areas back to natives, and so so by saying yes, I was able to kind of hold on to this moment of like hope of being like, look, there is progress. Like it might seem like the world is crumbling. It might seem like there's nothing but corn, but here is this little corner of hope, a little corner of progress. We've both talked about how there's such a large community and almost a culture of monarch fans. What is it about the monarch butterfly that has captured such a large community of people who are working for its survival? I think there's a lot of different things going on. I think one of the biggest ones is what I describe as the monarch being democratic. Like, I have decided the monarch is the most democratic of species because they don't care if you live on a farm in Texas or in New York City or the suburbs of Omaha. Like, they don't care where you live. If you plant plants for them, they'll come to you. And I think there's something beautiful about the fact that the monarch can reach everyone. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to own a lot of land. You don't have to travel far. You can literally just go outside and look up and you can be connected to these animals. And then I think the second part of that is they, they connect us, right? They connect our efforts because they're multi-generational, because they're doing this migration. You can look at a monarch in your yard and you can ask yourself the question, whose decision to plant milkweed in their yard led to me being able to see this monarch? And then you can go the next step and you can plant milkweed in your yard and then you can imagine who is going to see a monarch entirely because of the choice that, that you made or that I made to plant milkweed. And that connection is powerful. And the monarch connects us to so many places and so many people and so many efforts. The third one for me is they're big and they're beautiful and they're easy to spot and they're easy to identify and there's a lot of them. And so they they kind of just have become part of our, our lives and the more that people love them, the more people talk about them and the more they get in the news and then the more other people notice them so then more people can fall in love with them and it's this, this spiral. And, and we really need people to, to pay attention that and, and fall in love with, with not just the monarchs but with all the animals. And, and, and I, I see that happening. I mean, I see we have a long way to go, but there's a lot of people that didn't care about bugs five years ago that now have dug up their front yards and are welcoming not just monarchs, but all sorts of pollinators to their yards, to their homes. Which really leads me into the next question, which is, does the popularity of the monarch, is that helping other insects that are striving to survive, or is it overshadowing them? Oh, to me, it's 100% helping. All monarchs, gateway bugs. They're beautiful, they're easy to love, and then once you've fallen in love with the monarch, you start to get curious about what their caterpillars look like. So then you start looking around the milkweed, and then you discover all the other bugs that within the milkweed, and then you start to learn about them, and then that leads you on all these other other tangents to discover other animals, and then before you know it, you're learning scientific names of plants and bugs that you didn't even know existed, so... 
a sign saying this is monarch habitat on the side of the road so someone doesn't complain that it looks overgrown or, quote, weedy. That's a win for not just those monarchs and not just those plants, but all those animals that need that land. Could you talk a bit about the work that Monarch Watch is doing and some of the other organizations that are working so hard to ensure their survival? Yeah, Mon- Monarch Watch is a, a nonprofit out of Kansas University. They just celebrated their 30th anniversary. And they started a tagging program, so they would put stickers on the wings to track where the monarchs were going. So it started as a tagging program, and the founder is Dr. Chip Taylor. And he's just like such an inspiration because he saw, through all of his research, he saw that the monarchs were declining. And so he realized, you know, we're going to do something. So he invited the public to help. And he started several projects, including the Waste Station Project. So anyone can plant a garden in their yard or church or school or library, if they meet a certain criteria, which is having a certain amount of nectar plants, a certain amount of milkweed, having it be a certain size, then you can register that garden and you can buy a sign so that people know why that garden is there and why it's not just green grass. You can kind of see the the web across the U.S. and and Canada of people planting, planting plants for the monarch. And then they're, they're also just, a, besides being research and conservation and the tagging program, doing a really good job of helping give monarchs a voice. I'm, I'm really inspired by them. They're a small team doing a lot of work. They've gotten millions of, of milkweeds in the ground because of their efforts. I mean, there's so many organizations. And because the monarch spreads out, there's lots of regional monarch projects. So, like, there's the Okies for, for monarchs, and they're in Oklahoma. Missouri Prairie Foundation, which is fighting for prairies and incest for monarchs in, in Missouri. And so, like, every, every place kind of has, has maybe a, a go-to spot with, with leaders that can really help drive the effort. But it's all part of a bigger picture. It's all part of making sure monarchs, no matter where they arrive, will find what they need. And I think that's such an important part of conservation is about reminding ourselves that, one, conservation can be fun, and two, putting in the work is rewarding because you're going to you're gonna be rewarded with friendships and with a feeling of, like, the world is not impossible and, like, there are solutions to these problems. I would encourage everyone to, to find one. My, my other favorite Monarch organization is Monarch Joint Venture. They have a really, really good website with lots of really good, accurate information that's accessible and easy to understand. Check them out as well. But before we go... I would like to ask you about another project, one that you started called Beyond a Book. Was this something you started as a result of your bike trip with the monarchs? I wanted my trips to not just be temporal. I didn't want them just to be while I was canoeing the Missouri River. I wanted them to be a place where people could go and celebrate the Missouri River or celebrate the monarch or celebrate Latin America through my adventures after my adventure ended. And when I was thinking of what I wanted to call it, I always, like, I, I find it, it's so important to, like, I love books. I, I mean, I, read, I wrote a book. I love reading, and I've learned a lot from books, but I always feel like that's the first step. Like, first you can read, read my book and kind of learn some of the science, but it's really going out into that roadside ditch and seeing a monarch for yourself or planting the milkweed in the ground and realizing, oh, like, sometimes milkweed dies because... I put it in the shade, and like, that's an, an important way to learn. So, so for me, beyond a book comes from the idea of 
we got to go beyond the books. We've got to get out into the world. We've got to crawl on our hands and knees through the roadside ditches and get face-to-face with a little caterpillar to, to really learn. In your book, you say, quote, the monarchs were helping me see many worlds. What do the monarch butterflies mean to you, and what are some of those worlds? The monarchs, to me, are a symbol of, at this point, of a lot of people coming together and learning how to share the world. And they are an ambassador to nature, and they are an invitation to so many people. And they are they are proof that we can do something. Like I said, this world is so scary, and the news is so bad, and it can feel impossible and paralyzing. But then you're like, no, all the monarchs need is us to plant some milkweed and some nectar plants. So you dig some holes and you plant some plants, and like all of a sudden it's like, wow, I did something. And if I can do that, well, maybe I can do the next thing. That might be a little harder, but like I, the monarch is the invitation to start and to try. The monarch and I, are, we are so connected, and... I see the the relationship with me and the monarch is this beautiful example of reciprocity. I give my time and my energy and my voice to the monarchs, and they turned around and gave me an adventure and friendships and a book. And so then I'm turning around and, and doing trying to do more for them. I'm, I'm currently right now doing a, a research project in Mexico where I've trained I've trained 10 women. I'm trying to get that up to 21 women. And in that, it's been really beautiful because I see them fall in love with the monarchs because three times a day, we have to go look and count them and notice notice these animals that they share their backyards with. So that's kind of my, my way right now to to say thank you. And I want people to know that, yes, I'm asking them to plant milkweed. Yes, I'm asking them to change what they think a beautiful yard looks like. And I want that yard to be wild and full of color and flowers and spiders and it's not selfless like you you plant those gardens and the monarchs will will give back to you which is such a beautiful lesson and the more we we realize what the gifts that we're getting from nature i, I think the more we'll stand up and, and protect those gifts i hope you enjoyed this episode with Sarah Dykeman, and that you visit her website, beyondabook.org, to learn more about the wonderful work she is doing to save the monarchs. Nature Revisited would like to thank the Save Our Monarchs Foundation for sponsoring this episode, and that you visit their website, saveourmonarchs.org, to learn more about the work that they are doing. I hope you will share Nature Revisited, the podcast, with friends, family, and colleagues, and that you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. The music for this episode is Tower of Song by Marianne Faithful. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature.